Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. Fake news, doctored photos, outright lies. We're inundated by misinformation online. It's gotten so bad, no one can agree on basic facts anymore. Here to give us some perspective is Claire Wardle. She spent her career helping news organizations and communities combat misinformation. She recently joined Brown's School of Public Health as the co-director of its Information Futures Lab. We'll get her advice after this quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Claire Wardle, the co-director of the Brown School of Public Health's Information Futures Lab. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the big lie. Oof. Former President Donald Trump still says that the 2020 election was stolen, and polls show up to 70% of Republicans don't think President Biden was the legitimate winner. How is that possible? Uh, You say that because you, like many journalists, researchers, academics, we like to think that people have a rational relationship to information. But actually, everybody has an emotional relationship to to information. And unfortunately, there were people who took advantage of those supporters to make them believe that their worldview was the right one, that their guy didn't lose, that he had something stolen from him. I think one thing we have to really understand is we talk about polarization. There's two different realities in this country. It's not just, oh, some people look at different. I mean, people are living in a completely different reality. Everything they look at, everything they watch on television, if they listen to on radio, all the conversations with their friends at the golf club or at the school gate, Everybody they know is saying the same thing. So for them, that is the reality. It's not, oh, but this YouTube video says something different. They're living a completely different reality to the one that maybe people listening to this podcast So we've got two parties, two groups of people, citizens basing their beliefs on a separate set of facts. Yeah. Wow. What are the implications for democracy? Terrifying. 
really, really terrifying. And I think I'm somebody who studied misinformation for a decade. And often people are like, oh, Claire, like you just care about memes on Instagram. Like, why is it such a big problem? But the problem is, is when you have half the country that fundamentally does not believe that the system of democracy, that the electoral process is one that they trust. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I am really concerned around the midterms I think are going to be a trial run. But 2024, I think there'll be a number of races where we just won't have a winner. There won't be the infrastructure to call some races. Wow. And I don't know where, where we end up. And that's why I think it would not, I think, I know it's a terrifying That is scary. Situation. That is scary. And you're saying it's conf- it's like confirmation bias. Like if someone tells you something you want to hear, you want to believe Biden won or lost, you're going to believe it. Yeah, and I just really want to stress that this is a human frailty, that all of us are predisposed to seek out and believe information that reinforces our existing worldviews. It's not completely symmetrical, and we do see more of this on the right, but we also see a number of people on the left sharing misinformation about Trump. They have very strong beliefs about Trump, and when they see something that undermines Trump, they're like, yes, they, they don't. their critical faculties don't kick in, because why, why do you need to be critical? Because it reinforces your worldview. So we as humans are really susceptible to this, and unfortunately, there are bad actors, disinformation agents that take advantage of our frailties as humans, they drive this emotive content. And when we as humans are emotional, we are not necessarily critical. And that's the problem. Why is it worse now, though? Because there's always been the left and the right. There's always, there's always been polarization to some extent. Why is it is so out of scale now? So we've seen trends over the last 20 years that people's identity to their political party has got stronger. So Trust in institutions more generally has been declining, and we've seen that. Mm. Um, And then on top of that, we have a number of people whose lives have been turned upside down by the pandemic, more economic insecurity, climate insecurity, technological change. I mean, for many people, they don't understand how their life is the way it is. This wasn't what they expected. And so they are scared, they are frightened, they're unsure. And that makes them, again, very vulnerable to those people who are like, I'll tell you why your life isn't going the way it is, because there are secret cabals of people who are controlling the election, controlling employment, controlling the pandemic. And so that is a very simple narrative. Conspiracies are beautiful, powerful stories. On our side, we're like, here's another fact. Here's more evidence. Here's another thousand word dry article we want you to read. So we're, we're not playing with similar tools. And so unfortunately, those people who are believing this are A, vulnerable, and B, they're being taken advantage of by those who understand that. And before we get going any further, could you just define a couple of terms? Like, what's the, are we talking about misinformation these days or disinformation? So disinformation is a term that we use to describe deliberately false information created and shared to cause harm. So that would be, for example, in 2016, somebody in a basement in St. Petersburg, Russia, deliberately creating memes to try and steal the election. That is a disinformation campaign. Now, misinformation is also false or misleading information, but the person who shares it doesn't realize it's false and doesn't mean any harm. And so my mom resharing something on Facebook, that's very different to somebody who's deliberately trying to make money or have political power. So it's important that we use those terms correctly if we're trying to think of solutions. How you help my mom is very different to the way you stop the Russian troll. (laughs) I hope so. Um, (laughs) How much of a problem was misinformation or disinformation during the pandemic? A huge problem, unfortunately. I mean, I have to say, 
We've always had false cures for cancer. We've always had people peddling health supplements. So we've always, and we've always had rumors. I mean, it's, that's not new. But unfortunately, the pandemic was this crisis moment where everybody's life was turned upside down and you, and you saw people deliberately trying to take advantage of that situation. So flooding social media with all sorts of false cures and scaremongering stories. The only time I've ever shared misinformation was when I got a text message and I was living by myself in my studio apartment in New York City. And it said, the city will be locked down tomorrow. You need to go and get provisions. Ah. And I, it was in a trusted group. And I was like, oh my goodness, shared it with three people. And then five minutes later, it was like, I teach their stuff. <laughs> but in that moment, I was terrified. And I think so that was partly the it was two things going on. We were scared and people took advantage of it. And, and you talk about the attacks on institutions like during the pandemic, you saw people turn on the CDC. They turned on Dr. Fauci. How did that happen? Well, that happened because the world of science is one that moves slowly, mm. that people are only want to talk about conclusions when we have enough data. But in a period of uncertainty, we as humans wanted certainty. Being told, oh, we've got to wait for more data was not as satisfying as somebody saying, if you're scared, gargle with lemon water. If you're scared, take this treatment. And so that was part of the problem too. That, And I think the CDC and other institutions are now reflecting on that to say, well, how do you do communications in 2022? Because in, for example, 1996, we had you know, a small number of nightly news. You know, we had newspapers, we had trusted gatekeepers. Now when anybody can publish, if you seek out information, you will find information that reinforces your worldview. And so the pandemic was just bad information, literally on steroids. Right, isn't that a big part of it is when I grew up, we had Walter Cronkite saying, this is the way it is every night. Well, I just want to say, well, now it's the absolute opposite of that, which is that we are all overwhelmed by information. But I think going back to the Walter Cronkite piece, that was also wasn't perfect, as if there was only ever seven news stories a day and, you know, <laughs> and nothing else yeah, mattered. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, the amazing thing about the Internet is it's given voice to so many people and communities that we didn't hear from before. We know about the internet. Every day there's an amazing story that makes you smile and laugh and there's amazingly wonderful things on the internet. There's also horrible things on the internet. Yeah. What does that reflect? Society. Mm -hmm. Every day amazing things happen on the streets and terrible things happen on the streets. So what <clears throat> we're going through as a society is this shift because the internet was a revolution. Mm -hmm. When the Gutenberg press was created, you went from a situation where Every anybody could publish a pamphlet, and there was a hundred years of war as a result. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. you know, when people say, "What's the quick fix? How do we stop this?" It's like there isn't a quick fix. We've got thirty to fifty years that we have to learn to adapt as humans to a polluted information environment. Mm. We will never have clean and inf clean information environment, but we as humans will adapt and become better at figuring out credible information, trusted information, how to share that, taking responsibility for what we publish. Let me get your thoughts on one recent case. We had a North Kingstown town council member post on social media that at least two students identified as a cat and that the school district accommodated them with a litter box in school bathrooms. That was not true, um, but it made headlines. I spoke with town councilwoman Mary Brimer tonight who is running for re-election. She told me she hopes these allegations are false, but regardless, the reports cannot be overlooked. If your child's coming home talking about the cat in the classroom, or is laughing about a litter box, you need to take that seriously. And you know, everybody was getting outraged and saying, oh, it's the woke public schools. Uh, how often do you see scenarios like that where things go viral that have no basis in truth? 
every day, all the time. But I think what we have to think about with this particular example is the reason that it went viral was it's not about the cat. It's about the conversations around young people having the ability to say, I identify as, and then choosing a gender. And so that was a way for people to take sides. So remember, this, so much about what you share on social media is about identity production or reinforcement. So that was a way of you kind of showing your friends and networks what you think about a wider national conversation, mm -hmm. but through a cat, which if somebody came back to you, like, oh, I was just sharing a meme about a cat. So unfortunately, those of us who study this, you, we can't see these individual examples without understanding the wider conversational trends and social trends that are happening because often it's it's very directly connected. And are, are the social media platforms like TikTok or Facebook or Twitter, are, are they doing anything about all this information? Is there something more they should do? They are doing something. And in fact, the most egregious falsehoods in the English language they are now doing more to remove or they down rank or they add a fact check or they add a label. You know, the, the ecosystem looks very different in the US or, you know, other English speaking countries than it did five years ago. And this is a much bigger conversation that society needs to have, which is things like terrorist content or child sexual abuse imagery. That is illegal content. And we would all agree what needs to happen to it. Me having making a, a statement on my Facebook page about ivermectin. Is that misinformation? So should the platforms take action on it? That is all gray speech. And that's what's so difficult. But at the same time, if we let the platform say, oh, it's not our problem, my concern is we're sort of sleepwalking into a situation where many people just don't know who to trust and actually are taking information at face value and leading to taking health supplements that are damaging or not seeing the doctor when they should do or those kind of behaviors. Yeah, I've, I've seen attempts by the government in Europe and Great Britain are to try to regulate uh, this issue. But what are the dangers of giving the government the power to say, well, that's a lie and this is true? It's hugely problematic to give those powers to government. And it goes back to how do we define what misinformation is mm -hmm. when it's gray speech? And if we go back to the pandemic, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were told you don't have to wear a mask, that actually this virus is traveling on touching things, not through aerosol yeah. transmission. Well, then it changed. Now, was that misinformation back then? Well, at the time, it was information. Right, but right. then it shifted to misinformation. So this space is really actually hard when you think about regulation, because the minute the government says, this is good speech, this is bad speech, can we? Re is that really what regulation should be about? I think what we do need is more transparency. Mm -hmm. So for example, if if you, you know, if you're a policymaker on the Hill and you said, oh, Dr. Wardle, sh tell me how much misinformation is there every day and what harm is it doing? Well, even after six years of rigorous research, I couldn't give you the answers to that because we don't actually know because it's all hidden within the companies. Well, that's not OK. Financial institutions have to talk about and be transparent about their methods. That's what we're demanding from platforms. So it's less about governing specific types of speech. It's governing the way that these companies operate and forcing them to be more transparent. And, and what can the media do? You know, when I worked at the Providence Journal, I used to do some items for the local PolitiFact you know, examining whether a local politician was making statements that were true or not. How effective are fact-checking initiatives? You see them at the Washington Post, too. Yeah, so uh, fact-checking is very much one of the tools in a big toolbox. So it is really important that we have an accurate record. There is evidence that fact-checking over time with the right people at the right time 
all the caveats, it really does help people become more sophisticated in understanding the process. But what I would love to see the news media do is to play a more active role in helping audiences navigate this space. So for example, pre-bunking is when you get ahead of a expected rumor to explain. So for example, we have elections coming up soon. Every time there's an election, you'll pro- you often see a video where somebody's like, I'm pressing this person's name and it's flipping. And it becomes a big viral sensation. I'm like, oh, it's rigged. If you talk to election officials, they'll say, well, that's because that machine is 20 years old and the glue has ended up drying. So we have to recalibrate the machine. So, for example, explaining to voters ahead of election day, it's, prob- it's likely you'll see this sorts of video. It's very unlikely that it's voter fraud. And this is the actual reason it happens. And we spoke to an election official two weeks before the election to talk to them about it, as opposed to waiting for the video and then issuing a fact check. So the more we can help audiences understand what to expect and things like the tactics and techniques. So during the pandemic, you may have seen text messages that said, my sister's a nurse she's seeing dot, dot, dot. Well, that's a known tactic because as humans, we're really susceptible to first person stories and experiences. So that often gets used by bad actors as a way to fool us. That doesn't mean never trust a text message that talks about somebody's sister, but at the same time, be a little bit aware if you see those kind of viral messages, maybe that is a known tactic. So those kind of things, I think news organizations could play a role there in, in essentially digital media literacy. What's your advice? I mean, you deal with a lot of students. What, what do you tell students who are inundated with this in this generation? What, what advice do you give them? Well, it's not just students. In 2016, a study showed that the number one group of people that share misinformation is men over 65. Oh, so. wow. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, all of us see this stuff all the time. Yeah, and the yeah. number one rule I say to people is, when we all got these fancy phones, nobody gave us a driving test to say, before you open your fancy iPhone box or Android box, here are some rules of the road. You now have the ability to publish, and in a second, what you publish can go viral globally. Here's some things you might want to think about because with great power comes great responsibility. So I say to people, if you if you have a thing you really want to share, before your thumb starts twitching, are you the right person to share this? Are you an epidemiologist? Are you a Ukraine war? But like, how do you know? And who's benefiting from you sharing it? If it's your amazing Irish stew that you made last night, you are the expert. But for most other things, it, you probably aren't the expert. So I talk about that, which is giving, saying you have to be responsible for that. And the second thing I say is you also have to hold each other accountable because you often hear people say, oh, I've had to mute my high school friend on Facebook. They just keep posting nonsense. And we're, we're actually avoiding the difficult conversations with each other to say, hey, can we have a chat about this? When people are sharing this stuff, it's not because they deliberately want to cause trouble. Often they're scared. They're confused. They're not sure. And the more you talk to people, the more you hear. I mean, 25% of people are scared of needles. So a lot of people who said, I'm not getting vaccinated because Bill Gates is putting microchips in the vaccine. Fact check, he wasn't. People were saying that because they were. it was easier to say, I'm not getting vaccinated because of insert rumor than it was to say, I'm scared of needles. So mm. having these conversations with people can often lead to unexpected, um, really positive conversations. Do students need to be taught to be media literate? Should that be a class going forward? 100%. Yeah. But it also should be lifelong learning. Yeah. And we should be giving students the tools to go home and talk to grandma about it. 
and be like, hey, grandma, this is what I saw on TikTok today. And grandma says, oh, that's great. But let me, I'm just a bit concerned because that message in that video, that seems to be something that like is a bit concerning to me. Can we, is that misogyny? Can we talk about it? So I actually think if we had more intergenerational conversations, it would combine the technology with the social trends that people are seeing. So I'd love to see that as opposed to, oh, it, exi- it should just exist in a classroom and that's it. And last question, are you worried or hopeful about the next generation dealing with all this bad information? I'm really hopeful. It's hard to get up every day when the alarm goes off, like spending time in the horrible armpits of the internet. But I actually, I really believe that we will get through it. And I think to me, it's exciting to watch how we are getting through it. But there are days where I feel like I'm just banging my head against the wall. But if you spend any time with young, younger audiences, they're like, they get this and they're, they're really excited to take part, I think, in helping teach people how we learn to navigate this space. That's great to hear. Claire Waddle, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Here are some more stories from our team. Brian Amaral has an article about plans to replace two bridges on the East Bay bike path. Alexa Gagas has a Q&A with the founder of Branch Food, a company that supports food brands that are ready to take their business to the next level. And Amanda Milkovitz has a story on conservative efforts to ban books and the librarians that are working to keep those books on the shelves. For these stories and more, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.